Well, hey, let's start off this morning just doing a little quick survey. If you're here and you've been going to church for roughly 40 years or more, would you just raise your hand? How many of you have been in church for, for a long time, about half room, maybe just a little more than half? And so, uh, so here's what I'd venture to guess. For those of you who raised your hand, um, when you went to church, everybody pretty much did church the same way, right? Like everybody kind of sang the same song, everybody sang from, from a hymnal, uh, everybody had a choir at that point in time. Most of the buildings uh, looked pretty similar. If you were going to church in the 70s, uh, I'm convinced there were only two carpet color uh, options in the 70s, burnt orange and pea green. Those are the only, like everybody had the same carpet, same kind of furniture uh, layout. And the role of the pastor uh, was pretty consistent. His job was pastoral care and preaching, not, not a lot of emphasis on organizational leadership or any of those kind of things. Uh, the strategy for children's ministry was pretty complex. It was called a coloring book, right? Like, like 30, 40, 50 years ago, you just you had a children's ministry. That just meant you put kids in a room down in the basement and you gave them a coloring book and everything was fine. Uh, back then, nobody had uh, background checks because church was considered a safe place. Um, but right around 1980, things began to shift and uh, the uh, church became more casual uh, church became more contemporary. Uh, little neighborhood churches often gave way to, to mega churches as they just kept growing and growing. And, and what's been interesting in the last 40 plus years in all these shifts in methodology and, and how the people do church is this, is that there have been kind of camps or tribes that have formed around how you do church or how this group thinks you should do church and people kind of gravitate towards those. But for example, uh, some people in one camp would say this, in a post Christian culture, if you're not incredibly creative in your presentation, you have no hope of reaching anyone for Christ uh, in that. Some people would say, actually, just the opposite is true. And for certain groups, everything that old is new again, so there's been a rise in uh, liturgical worship and some of those forms. And so for those folks, they say, you know what, that's the, that's the key to reaching people and making disciples. Uh, for some, they've uh, said that felt needs preaching is the way to go. Just find out what people's felt needs are and preach that. So it becomes uh, kind of what I call group group counseling. And so they say that's the way to reach people, make preaching relevant. Others would say, no, no, preaching should be uh, theology driven. It should be doctrinal driven. It should be all those kinds of things. And so, and depending on uh, which group or tribe you agree with, what I found is this, is that preachers run in packs. I don't know if you knew that or not. And so if you agree with certain tribes or certain groups and you find yourself, what you do is you end up going to all the same conferences they go to, you read all the same authors together, you follow all the same people on Twitter, and then you criticize the people on the other campus, often uh, what happens. In other words, um, you read everything that John MacArthur writes, or you read everything that Andy Stanley writes. Uh, rare is the person who reads from both of those people, and if they do, uh, they don't tell anyone, right? So... Uh, you either agree with the reform crowd um, or you uh, align with the church growth crowd. You either think that strategy is incredibly important in church or you think that strategic planning is for corporations and has no business uh, inside of a church. And so, so some would argue that when you look at trends, the only churches actually making a difference uh, are mega churches and their, their reach. Others would argue and say, no, 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 uh, there's actually a grassroots movement all around the world of house churches. And they're sweeping the world, and those are what's going to make a difference. And so the reality is this. As a pastor, it is incredibly um, confusing and often challenging to navigate all of these voices out there in church culture that say this is how church should look, this is how church should operate, this is what it means to be biblical, this is what it means to be relevant. And sometimes it's become incredibly uh, confusing. And to make it worse, everybody has a platform now because of social media. So 
Uh, why do I say all that? Because here's the reality. In all of that shifting uh, and rapidly changing church culture, there has been one voice that, that, that I have grown to appreciate more and more and more. Uh, it's a person who has been both faithful and relevant, who's kind of mixed those things, and it's uh, pastor and author Chuck Swindoll. Any Chuck Swindoll fans in here? Yeah, so some people say, you, you remind me so much of its preaching, and because that's because I steal his sermons, right? Amen? Apparently not. So Chuck Swindoll uh, is 80, I didn't know this, he's 83 years old. I'm 41 and a half. He's exactly twice my age, still pastoring a church, Stonebriar Church, throwing thousands of people, and uh, 83, still navigating the balance between biblically faithful and uh, practically relevant in his teaching. I believe that his wisdom transcends trends. I think that what he's doing is just incredible, and he's been doing it now for, for a long, long time. Let me share with you a collection of some of my favorite uh, Chuck Swindoll quotes. Uh, here's one. He says, we're all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. I, I love that. He says, the world's smallest package uh, is a man wrapped up in himself. He said, the remarkable, remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. Uh, this one's probably the one he's most well-known for. It's my favorite Chuck Swindoll quote. Uh, here's what he says. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. That's an incredible uh, insightful quote. Here's the last one. Uh, he said, if I didn't believe that eternal security was true, I would carry around a pistol. And every time someone got saved, I would shoot them on the spot because that's the only way we could be sure they would actually end up in heaven. Is that not fantastic, right? So if you ever come in one week and I'm packing heat, it's because I love you, all right? And I want to make sure that you get to heaven. So, so here's the thing. That's a funny quote. I've read that quote several times. That's a funny quote, but here's a fair question. Is it true? Is that a true statement that he makes? That that's the only way we can be sure that a saved person ever ends up in heaven. So uh, how can we teach on eternal security or once saved, always saved, and then wrestle with texts like Hebrews chapter 6? So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles if you have it or turn on your device and uh, go to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning uh, for a message entitled Eternally Safe or uh, Self-Deceived. Now, if you grew up in a church context, if you grew up in church, maybe like me, I didn't grow up in church, but if you did, uh, you, you came from one of two camps on this issue. Number one, you grew up and your pastor, your church, your denomination, whatever taught that, hey, once a person is saved, um, that their, their neck can never lose that salvation. It's called eternal security. Uh, some people call it uh, once saved, always saved, once in grace, always in grace, all, you know, whatever terms are. But there are other people, uh, if you grew up in church, you came from a different school of thought or teaching, and your church or your pastor, your group, um, they taught that, no, no, listen, just like you chose salvation, uh, you can choose to walk out of that relationship. So uh, once saved, always saved is not true. A person can lose their salvation. They can fall from grace, all kinds of words they would use in there. And so if you come from this camp and you say, hey, listen, I think that once a person's saved, they're, they're eternally saved, eternal security, all those things. Here's the reality. You have to wrestle with Hebrews chapter 6 then. You have to wrestle because there is some language in there that I mean pushes you to the limit in regards to that theology or that uh, worldview or that doctrinal teaching. And matter of fact, it doesn't just end in chapter 6. Uh, you're going to find it in Hebrews chapter 10. There's another passage in there that's incredibly uh, alarming. There's a, a mention there in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. There's another challenging passage there. And so uh, one of the things we say here all the time is this. We, we don't teach around tough truths. We teach through them. And so if we come up on scripture and it's like, oh, that's a little, that's a little intense, that's a little challenging, that's a little convicting, we just teach right through it. Why? Because the Bible says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. What does that mean? It's useful. 
And so this is one of those passages. Now, if you were here six years ago, raise your hand if you were not here six or seven years ago. This wasn't your church. Lots of you, most of you. So here's the reality. About six or seven years ago, I taught a series when I first got here called Delivery Confirmation. And it was a series on eternal security. And so we looked at, here's the strongest passages that teach eternal security. Here are the challenging passages that you've got to wrestle with. And one of those passages was Hebrews chapter 6. Another was Hebrews 10, which we'll get to later in the series. And so, so, uh, so we've walked through this passage before. So some of this, if you've been here a while, this may be familiar. But here's the reality. Um, th- this is a challenging topic. Uh, this is something that, that even though we hear it once, we read this again, we're like... I still don't know that I totally understand, and we learn by repetition. So we're going to go back through uh, Hebrews chapter 6. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the passage we looked at last week. Here's why. Because the passage context um, for the challenging verses, which is chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the context is first set in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. And if you just pull verses 4, 5, and 6 out and try to form your theology, you're going to be all messed up, all right? So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 is where we'll start, and we'll read through chapter 6 down through verse 8. If that sounds like a good plan, say amen. Amen. Good, because that's what I was going to do anyway, all right? Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's getting on to them about not growing spiritually, okay? Uh, You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. In other words, you're, you're spiritual babies, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Uh, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use or practice in some translations uh, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The idea there is maturity. Uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance. So the, what he's going to rattle here is a, a bullet list of all these teachings that were part of Judaism, which they supposedly had been converted out of. Okay, these are all elementary teachings in Judaism. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, here, here's where it gets really, really tricky theologically. All right, verse 4. For it is impossible... For those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks, then he goes into illustration, okay? For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But... Here's a contrast. If it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, uh, this is a challenging, challenging uh, passage of Scripture. It's so challenging that, I don't know if you know this or not, if you've heard this, uh, that Martin Luther, who was one of the catalysts for the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, uh, because of this passage in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12, Martin Luther, read, uh, when he read the book of Hebrews, here's what he concluded. I'm not totally sure that Hebrews should even be in the Bible. But that's how bothered by, by it he was. He said, I, I'm not sure he said the same thing about James. He wasn't totally sure about Revelation. And so when it came to Hebrews, he said, you know what? I don't think that should be in there. I don't think that should be a part of it. Uh, there was a great Bible teacher from, from years ago. He passed away uh, by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And here's what he said about this passage. He said, I can definitely say after 35 years of pastoring, there are no passages in the whole of Scripture 
which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6 in the corresponding passage in Hebrews 10. Large numbers of Christians are held in bondage by Satan related to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. Now, this is interesting. Here's what he says. He says, I do not say that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such. But I do assert that they are the passages that the devil seems to use the most in order to distress God's people. So, so let me give you the cliff notes of both Luther and this tough passage, all right? That's what they're all saying here. Now, let me just tell you on the front, this is a doctrinal sermon, all right? And so some of you in hearing that, what you just heard is, this is a boring sermon, right? And so sometimes we want relevance at the expense of doctrine. That's divisive and dry and dusty and all those things. But let me just ask you a question. A hundred years from now, for every person in the room, what is there that's more relevant than wondering if you'll still be saved or not? I would argue that from an eternal perspective, this is one of the most relevant passages we'll ever walk through because a hundred years from now, you'll want this to be relevant. You'll want to know, was this true or not? Because then it counts. I mean, can you imagine... Uh, you know, if we didn't, if eternal security wasn't true, you, you go before you die. You go before uh, you know Saint Peter. You're standing there at the gate, and he says, "Hey, let me see your ticket." And you didn't realize that somewhere along the way your salvation fell off, right? Like you're like looking around, like I, I thought I was in. I'm not in. Is this true? Is this not true? This is an incredibly relevant passage, but it is also a very confusing passage. So here's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I want to organize our thoughts around two basic principles here in in chapter six. Uh, particularly verses 4 down through verse 8, and two key truths to understand this morning to get a handle on a very, very difficult passage, all right? The first uh, thing I want you to see is this, is that you can engage consistently in religious activity and still not be a believer. You can engage consistently in outward religious activity and still not be a believer. Uh, We start off in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, because in there, he's making the expectation that, hey, listen, if you really belong to Christ, you should be growing spiritually. Like like this idea that you're still wrestling, they were under a lot of persecution by Nero, and so because of that persecution, uh, they they were kind of saying, you know what, Uh, let's just go back to Judaism, because no one bothered us back then, no one cared, but once we poked our head above the sand and we're living for Christ publicly, now we're getting killed for it, so let's just go back to Judaism, and so he leans in, the writer does, and says, hey, you know what, you should have grown so much spiritually that what was taught in the old covenant doesn't even appeal to you anymore. But but you haven't grown, so you're still like babies, and so therefore you're kind of wavering or you're drifting spiritually, okay? He says you need to be moving beyond uh, John 3, 16. And then he starts off, look at chapter 6, verse 1. What's the first word in verse 1? Yell it out. Yeah, one more time. Good. Therefore. So so you should be growing, verses 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, in other words, he just connected these Two passes, right? Now, here's something to remember. I want you to remember this. Um, the chapter divisions in your Bible were put there much, much later, all right? In the original language, this was one running flow of thought. So chapter 5, verse 12, 13, 14, you should be growing. You should be able to handle deeper things. You should be able to handle meat, not to be a baby. Therefore, if you could handle those things, you would lay aside all of these things um, in, in, in Judaism to the point where you, it doesn't even appeal to you anymore no matter how great the persecution is. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. Then here's what he's saying, all right? Listen closely. And if you do not, if you still decide 
After all that I've taught you, if you still decide to turn your back on pursuing Christ and go back to Judaism, then you give evidence you were never converted in the first place. Chapter 6, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. That's the context of this passage. And if you don't understand the flow of thought, you'll just cherry pick verses 4, 5, and 6 and go, see, you can lose your salvation. You can fall away. You can do all those kind of things. That's the flow of thought in this passage, right? So if we all get that, if it's clear, say amen. One more time. Good, all right. But here's the thing. Even though we can clearly look at the flow of thought, can we all agree that like there's some words and some phrases in there that are incredibly confusing and even appear to be contradictory? Like I get the flow of thought, but why in the world would he talk about falling away? Why in the world would he talk about, the, these are some phrases here, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk through these phrases here that are so difficult to unpack uh, in verses 4, 5, and 6. And so the, because the question is this. Every person in the room this morning knows someone or has heard of someone who was involved in religious external activity. They went to church, they, they taught Sunday school, they got baptized, they, they were in your youth group or your Christian school, and now that they would denounce the faith or they would say, I don't denounce it, but I'm not sure that it's uh, true anymore. And everybody in the room knows someone like that, do we not? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, that, that's kind of where I am. Like, I'm kind of struggling with this, this whole idea and how does this all uh, fit together. And so, so how, here's a question. How far can a person go with religious experience and still fall short of genuine salvation or true conversion? Okay, he answers that question by giving us four phrases here in verses 4 and 5. So let's just walk through them. Uh, the first thing we see is this. You can be well-versed about the gospel and still not be a believer. You can be well-versed about the gospel you can know it, you can articulate it, you may even know your way around your Bible a little bit and still not be a true follower of Christ. You say, where do you see that in the text? Go back to verse 4. Look at the phrases he uses in verse 4. He says, those who were once enlightened, those who have tasted of the good word of God. So, so listen, these are people that he's writing to. He says, hey, listen, you're not ignorant. It's not like you haven't heard this or have taught this. And so uh, the idea of enlightenment, there's a person who, who was once ignorant, but now they've been informed. Do we not say that in our culture? Someone says, hey, do you know about this? And you're like, no, I, I don't know about that. Enlighten me on the subject, right? So these are people who have been enlightened by the truth. These are people who could articulate and repeat and pass along the gospel and some of the teachings of the scripture or the truth they had up to that point in time. He says, you can be well-versed. You can be those who are enlightened. You're not ignorant here. Those who have tasted of the good word of God. So a person can articulate the gospel and never personally be transformed by it. Verse 4, that's what he says. What else does he say? He says, not only can you be well-versed about the gospel and, and the word of God, uh, secondly, you can participate in Christian experience. Go back to verse 4 again. In verse 4, uh, the phrase that he uses there, have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, some people argue, say, is the heavenly gift, is that a reference to Christ or is that reference to the Holy Spirit? I think it's reference to Christ because the Spirit is mentioned in the next verse. I think he's saying both those things. Uh, tasting is not the same as, as drinking. Uh, drinking in, tasting is just getting a little bit of a feel about whether or not you want to drink it in, take it in, uh, expose yourself to it. So, so he says, hey, listen, you've been around. Uh, you've tasted some Christian experience. In Hebrews chapter 4, these people are compared to the spies of Israel. And what do we know about the spies of Israel? They tasted of the promised land. They saw it. They, they saw a glimpse of it, but they never experienced it at that point in time. So he said these are people who are not ignorant of the gospel. 
These are people who have participated in some kind of Christian experience. They've tasted, they may not drank deeply from Christ's well, the living water, but they've, they've participated in Christian experience. Thirdly, we see in verse 4, these are people who have been present when the Spirit's been at work. Now, the first two, this, those are easy to explain, uh, but this one is incredibly uh, challenging. So if you're listening, say amen. Here's what he says in verse 4. Look at this phrase uh, in verse 4. For it is impossible to those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. We, we can explain that. That's not that hard to understand. But here it is. And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen. When I think of someone who's partaken of the Holy Spirit, I think of a person who's been baptized by the Spirit into salvation. I think of a person who the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of them. And if the Spirit of God dwells in me, that gives evidence I've been converted. I belong to the Father. So, so when he says a partaker of the Holy Spirit, it would appear at first glance that this is a person who was truly saved. The Spirit dwelled in them. And now they've fallen away, to use the language in the passage. So here's what I want you to understand. The word partake, it means to be associated with. And the idea is external expression rather than internal involvement. The word in the Greek for the word partake is the word notikos. And it doesn't mean possession. It means association. You say, what, what in the world does that have to do with anything? What he's saying is this. He say, listen, I, I don't understand how you can consider going back to Judaism because you've been around. You've been associated when the Spirit of God has been at work bringing salvation to people. You've been around when people who are formerly following the old covenant, the Spirit of God moved on their lives and transformed them radically by the power of the Spirit. You've been associated externally when the Spirit has moved in that place and you're going to go back. You've been there. You've seen the power of God. And you're thinking of turning your back. In other words, he said, you've been present when the Spirit has converted people. You've witnessed the gift of the Spirit. This is the same idea in Acts chapter 8. There's a guy there named Simon, Simon the Magician. And so uh, Simon's there and the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit during that time. They had apostolic gifts. So they're doing some incredible things, miracles all around. Simon's a magician. And so Simon comes up and says, hey, I'd like the Holy Spirit too. And they finally call him out and say, no, no, you don't want the Spirit to be inside of you. You just want to be able to do magic. Simon had been around the Spirit's work, but he never personally possessed the Spirit's indwelling in his life. So you can be well-versed about the gospel, verse 4. You can participate in Christian experience, verse 4. You can be present when the Spirit has been at work and have witnessed it, verse 4 as well. Not only that, you can also witness evidence of the power of God. Look at verse 5. What does he say? He said, you have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. What's, what's he talking about? Both in Christ's first coming and in, again in his second coming, one of the things that will give evidence, it'll be accompanied by signs and wonders. And a part of his first coming is to say, hey, listen, you've seen all those signs and wonders. You're not ignorant. You've been around ex Christian experience. You've seen the Spirit of God move. You've seen signs and wonders at Christ's first coming. And so you can engage in all kinds of religious activity and never, ever be converted in the first place. And that's what he's saying here in verses 4 and 5. He says the first thing what you see, but then it also has one more truth, and it is a serious and a sobering one uh, in verse 6, uh, which is simply this. Well-known but completely rejected truth makes salvation impossible. Well-known but completely rejected truth makes true salvation possible. Go to verse 6 again. In verse 6, what does he say here? 
He says, if they fall away, now can we just all agree that's a scary phrase, is it not? Like if you're here and you're like, oh, I totally believe in eternal security, I totally believe once a person is saved, they're always saved. And then you read in verse 6, if they fall away, you're like, can they do that? Is that true? Have I been wrong? Am I okay? What's he say? If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Now, go back to verse 4 because it won't make sense. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened that if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. That's a flow of thought there, right? Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What, what, what What does that even mean? What does it mean to crucify Christ again? Basically, what he's saying there is that when a person chooses against Christ to leave their former profession of faith and choose the pleasures of the world, the temptations, all of those things, what they're saying is, hey, listen, I think these things have more value than Jesus has, and so therefore, when those people put him to death, they made the right decision. I agree that was the right decision in light of all the world has to offer. And he says, if you turn your back on your profession and choose the world, then what you're saying is, when they crucified Christ, they got it right, his life did not have value. This is more valuable. That's what he's saying there. That when a person turns their back on Christ in their profession of faith and never returns again, what they're saying is when they crucified Christ, they made the right decision. This has more value. This has more pleasure. This has more satisfaction to pursue the world. That's what he's saying there. And so the reality is here when he talks about this, um, just as a little side note here. Now listen, um, what he's saying there is, listen, once a person does that, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. He says it, it, it's, it cannot happen when a person completely renounces Christ after having known him and known truth and known the gospel. and then turn, It's impossible to, for him to come back to the place of repentance. Now, just a little side note, right? So, so if you're here or you've heard somebody teach, you're not sure, and someone says, no, I don't think eternal security is true. I think you can lose your salvation and gain it and lose it and gain it and lose it and gain it and lose it over and over. Listen, according to this passage, they would say as evidence... By Hebrews 6. You know what Hebrews 6 says? Here's what Hebrews 6 says in verses 4, 5, and 6. What it says is this. Once you lose it, it's impossible to gain it again. So if someone says, hey, I think you can lose your salvation, you say, well, then if you're going to be consistent, then you can never find it again. Because that's what he says. It is impossible to come to repentance again. Those who fall away, who have known the truth, who have experienced all these things, verse 4, 5, and 6. It's not saved, lost, saved, lost, saved. It's, it's saved, lost in the game, if you believe that. Now, let me tell you what's not being described in verses 4 through 6. This is not a person, uh, who a bump in the road, they've had some struggles, or they've ever experienced doubt. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced doubt on any level as regards to faith. Anybody in the room, all right? Most of us, me included in the room. And sometimes we look at doubt, we look at the opposite, or faith, and we look at the opposite of faith must be doubt. No, listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Faith is not necessary if doubt doesn't exist. It's totally fine to wrestle with doubts from time to time. So he's not describing a person who's doubting. He's not describing a person who's drifting a little spiritually because of struggle or persecution or discouragement or whatever the case is. Listen, he's describing in verse 6 a person who has an open, defiant, decisive turning away rejection of Jesus Christ. I used to believe that. I no longer believe that. I'll never return back to that. The Bible has a word for that. It's called an apostate. That if a person's a true follower of Christ, they may wonder, but eventually their faith will persevere. They'll return to faithfulness. But the person who says, I reject that, I once proclaimed that, I never go back to that, that's an apostate. And that person is impossible 
for them to come to repentance is what the scripture says. Now, I don't want that to be true. Can I just be honest with you? I want, I want, when it says impossible to renew their repentance, I want, in the original language, I want to say it's hard, it's a struggle, they'll take a lot of encouraging, they'll take a lot of persuasion. No, no, in the original language, it says impossible. Impossible. And so what is complete rejection of truth? Like, like what, if it's not doubt, if it's not struggle, if it's not, what is complete rejection of truth? Here's what it is. Complete rejection involves inner conviction and outer profession. In other words, like we, listen, everybody in the room this morning knows someone who at one point in time, they, they were in church, and they taught Sunday school, and they were in your youth group, or, or those kind of things, and they seem to be pursuing Christ, but something happened, they got their feelings hurt, they, they had some kind of intellectual crisis, they didn't know if the Bible could be trusted, they didn't know if science was real, like whatever the case is, and somewhere along the way they said, you know what, I don't, prof- I don't follow that anymore, even though I used to. Most everyone in the room knows someone like that, me included. But here's what we hope and wonder, and we don't know. That even though they would say that, it's that they would hopefully say that out of hurt, on the inside they still believe. That's what, that's what we hope. So, so this is not that person. You say, well, how do you know if they still believe? Write this down. You don't. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that while man looks upon the outside, God looks upon the heart. So I can't see what the person's inner. But a total rejection is this. It's a person who says, I no longer even follow that, and they've got peace with that decision on the inside. Now, contrast that with this incredible, incredible story incredible story. There, there's an interview I read some time ago between a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel wrote uh, Case for Christ, and there's a movie out, Case for Christ, uh, that's been out. So Lee Strobel this guy. He was an atheist. He was a journalist. He set out to disprove Christianity, and in trying to disprove Christianity, he became converted. And he wrote a book called Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for Christmas, Case for Easter, Case for, you know, everything, okay? Case for chocolate. I can't, I can't remember what all of them words. Anyway. And there's another guy by the name of Charles Templeton. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Charles Templeton. Anybody heard of Charles Templeton? Just, just a handful. So Strobel was interviewing a guy named Charles Templeton. Now, most of you haven't heard Charles Templeton. Uh, Charles Templeton was one of three evangelists in a movement in the 1940s called Youth for Christ. Three evangelists called, started th- something called Youth for Christ. Uh, one of the other evangelists you may have heard of, Billy Graham. In, raise your hand. Anybody heard of Billy? I call him Billy because we're friends, and so I'm just Bill. So. And here's what people said about Templeton. Not only were he and Billy Graham friends, they, here's what people said routinely. They said, of the two, Templeton is the more gifted preacher. Can you imagine? So here's the guy, Billy Graham, and here's what happened. At a point in time, Templeton began to get exposed to liberal theology. He said, I can no longer come to believe what the Bible claims to be true. The Bible cannot be reliable. And Billy Graham made a decisive thing and went out in the field and had this big prayer, this experience. He said, I'm going to preach it like it's true. Templeton said, I'm not. I'm departing from the faith. The faith I once proclaimed to tens of thousands of people, I no longer uh, hold to that. I don't even uh, believe that anymore. Matter of fact, Templeton later wrote a book called Farewell to God guy who was with Billy Graham preaching crusades later writes a book called Farewell to God. Templeton died at the age of 85. Later in his life, he wouldn't grant interviews. He said, listen, I've made my position known clearly for years. Go read the book. I'm no longer, but but at the age of 85, he died in 2001 as a professing agnostic. Agnostic's not an atheist. The atheist said there is no God. An agnostic says, I'm not sure. But before he died, he granted a rare interview to this guy, Lee Strobel. And here's what the interview went. He said, uh, Templeton began to 
give his standard defense against Christianity. Here's why it's not true, and here's why I wrote, wrote the book. Here's what I've learned since then, and you know, just anybody that believes that's silly. Matter of fact, he said at one point, I feel sorry for Billy Graham. I think he believes what he really believes, but I feel sorry for him is what he said. And so Strobel listened to all this, and Strobel said, well, what about Jesus? And Strobel said, amazingly, Templeton's body language softened. He said his voice took on a melancholy and reflective tone. And then incredibly, he said this. Jesus is the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total, led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. Strobel, astonished, quietly said, well, you sound like you care about him. And Templeton said, well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life. He said, then he stammered, I, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Strobel said, I was stunned. He said, then Templeton's voice began to crack, and here's what he said through tears. I miss him. And he said he burst into tears. His shaking frame wept bitterly. Finally, Templeton gained control of his emotions and wiped away his tears and motioned with his hands and said, enough of that. End of interview. Now, was he a believer or not? I don't know, but listen. What he's describing here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, it's a person whose outer profession is total rejection, and they're not, they're not struggling with it. They've got inner peace. I don't believe it, and it doesn't even bother me when someone says I should. He says that person doesn't belong to the Lord. They didn't lose their salvation. They never possessed it in the first place. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? I'm not convinced. Like, I know that you believe in eternal security, and so I think you're bending the text to fit your presupposition. So, so I, I think this guy who he's talking to, I think he had salvation that he lost it. I don't think, I don't think, I don't agree. I think he had it and he lost it and that can happen over and over again. So, so let me just, uh, don't, don't let me convince you. Be convinced by the authority of the text. Go down to verses 7 and 8. We're almost done, so hang with me. Verses 7 and 8, he gives a final illustration that for me seals the deal. That this is not a person who had salvation and lost it. This is a person who, despite outward religiosity, never experienced true conversion. Okay? Look at verses 7 and 8. What's he say here? Chapter 6, verse 7, he gives an agricultural illustration. He said, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful to those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. Okay? Here's field number one. The soil of that field is representative of the soil of our hearts. We know that from the parable of the sower later, all right? So, so here's field number one. It experienced the seed, and the seed took root, and so fruit or, or uh, produce or herbs came up out of it. It produced fruit. Okay, field number one in this illustration. Go to verse 8 now, field number two. But it bears, the second field, bears thorns and briars. It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, let me ask you a simple question Simple question. Did the second field produce fruit and then fail to produce fruit later? Yes or no? You're stunned by my intelligence right now. That's why I can. The answer is no. It never, it, it, did it produce herbs? No. It produced thorns and briars, right? 
It didn't have fruit and then lost it and had fruit and lost it and had fruit and lost it. Listen, it never produced it in the first place. You know what he's giving an illustration of? This is the, the word of God, the seed of the gospel fell on different hearts and one heart produced fruit. And the other heart, despite the same seed of the gospel, it never produced fruit. It didn't have fruit and then lose it. It never produced it in the first place. The seed, the root never took place. He's not saying, hey, a person had salvation, lost it. He says, listen, the gospel seed never took root in their heart as evidenced by the fact that they never produced gospel fruit in their lives. Never. So, how do we apply this? One is this. We should never provide assurance of salvation for a life that never produces gospel fruit. And I don't care if they're your kids or your grandkids or some, like, listen, we should never provide assurance of salvation for a life that does not produce gospel fruit. Now, how much fruit? I don't know, some. The Bible says uh, little fruit, more fruit, much fruit, but it never says no fruit. That's what the scripture describes of a Christian's life. How many apples do you have to produce to be an apple tree? One. But if no fruit's ever evidence, that we shouldn't provide assurance. Number two, here's the good news. Um, if you're here and you belong to Christ and your life is born gospel fruit, here's the good news. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation because those people in this passage never possessed it. And the same grace that saved you, keeps you, and leads you all the way home. That is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to be scared of Hebrews 6. Why? Because Jesus conquered death and hell and life and everything in between. I remember sitting across from my office. First church. And I was meeting with this couple, and um, they came in because they, they thought, we want to talk to you about, about getting married. And I didn't really want to talk about that. I wanted to come in and talk to them about, about Jesus, right? It was shady. I admit it was shady. And they'd been coming to our church for a while and uh, began to talk to them. Just, oh, tell me about why you want to get married. And, well, tell me about your spiritual life and, you know, a little bit. And tell, tell me about your relationship with Christ. And, and about that time, I just began to explain the gospel to them. And, and the girl, her name is Kelly, uh, I mean, she's just crying the whole time. I'm like, all right. Clearly, God is at work on her life. Clearly, her heart is tender to things of God. And I said, Kelly, I said, do you want a relationship with Christ? She said, I do. I said, great. And so then I turned over to, to the guy, and, and I said, hey, I said, um, are you interested in a relationship with Christ? And he said, no, I'm not. And I, I was shocked. I thought, man, you've been coming here for weeks and weeks, and, and you listen, and you're you know, engaged. And he's like, and I said, he said, no, I'm not. And I said, okay. I said, so um, being spiritually nosy like every preacher is, I just, I just said, hey, why is that? Here's what he said. He said, I'm afraid I couldn't keep up my end of the deal. And I said, well, I appreciate you being honest. I said, but what if I told you that God's never lost a single person who's come to him by faith? What if I told you that God already knew that, knew that you couldn't keep up your end of the deal, so he made sure that Christ would hold up his end of the deal for people who couldn't hold up their end of the deal? I said, what would you say to that? He'd say, I'd say that's awesome. I'd like to get saved. And that's what he did right there. Here's the best news of all. God's offer of salvation in Christ is still awesome and available to every person in the room this morning. And once you belong to him, he will in no wise cast you out, is what the scripture says. And so grace saves you, keeps you, and leads you all the way home. That is the good news of the gospel. Once you possess it, you can never lose it, but you have to be willing to receive it. I'd like to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, let me just ask you a simple question. 
Do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've received him by faith as your Lord and Savior? Does your life give evidence of gospel fruit? I'm not saying you can't struggle and have seasons of doubt and wandering. We all do. When you look at the pattern of your life, since you made a profession, is there a pattern of pursuing Christ with your life? That is the invitation of Jesus in the Bible. Not believe in me, not repeat a prayer after me. The invitation of Jesus was simply this. Follow me. Follow me. And when you do, there's a pattern of obedience in your life. And so if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, and one of the reasons is you're not sure you could hold up your end of the deal, you're not sure how well you would perform, listen, here's the good news of the gospel of grace. You don't have to perform because he did on the cross. But if you'll open up your heart and life to Jesus Christ this morning, he'll save you by faith and he'll keep you by grace. And so if you're here and you said, you know what, I, that's incredible news, that's in, grace is incredible, I want to experience Jesus Christ, then I would invite you to pray along with me. There's no magic words in this prayer. It's the faith behind it that saves the person. So if you're here this morning, you want to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ and salvation, would you just pray with me? God will save you right, right in your seat this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I know that you love me as evidenced by what Jesus did on the cross for me. But I also have to confess that when I compare my life to the life of Jesus, I've fallen short. I've sinned. And therefore, I need forgiveness. My sin has separated me from you. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins. I believe he was buried and rose the third day so that I could experience salvation. And so I invite Jesus Christ into my life. I ask him to forgive me my sins and be my Lord and Savior. And from this day forward... I choose to follow Christ. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for grace. Lord, we're overwhelmed by the fact that you love and call and save strugglers and skeptics and drifters and doubters and everything in between, people just like me. And so, Lord, I pray that it's that overwhelming sense of what grace has done in our lives, God would motivate us to do one thing, to take grace to people who are broken and desperately in need of Jesus. We live in a culture where there are thousands and millions of hurting people. God, let us be so transformed that we can't keep it to ourselves. And so, God, your grace alone saves us. Your grace alone keeps us saved. May we tell of it until you come back. We pray in Jesus' matchless name because we can. Amen.